Okay, welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and all things related to Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. I am Kristen and I am joined today by Tash, joined again by our guest Tash, who you may remember from a Clueless episode that we did quite a long time ago. Welcome, Tash. How are you? How have you been? Well, thank you. I'm back to bother you again. <laughs> <laughs> We're delighted that you wanted to come back on. This is um we we are extremely excited. And I always say Maggie, I will say we, but unfortunately Maggie was not able to be here today last minute um because of some issues with Alex. He has an ear infection. But we are forging on and really excited to hear um what you have to tell us today. I suppose today we're talking about gothic literature. <laughs> perfect topic for Halloween. Yeah, perfect. So how much do you know about gothic literature? I know very little, aside from my one accidental reading of The Monk with no context whatsoever. Oh, I know very little. We definitely have to discuss that. <laughs> you finished it? I did. I read the whole thing. <laughs> oh, okay. That is definitely going to be relevant later on. But I suppose I'll just dive into a little bit of a background of Gothic literature because it's quite hard to define because it wasn't exactly a movement. It was more of a literary aesthetic. So because of this, it's easy to look at it in terms of tropes or common elements that pop up in Gothic fiction. So like things like that barren and harsh landscape, the haunted castle, damsels in distress, dreams and nightmares. You get like the curses and the ancient prophecies and supernatural stuff. And it's really interesting because the reason Gothic literature is so fascinating to study is because we see so many of these elements in the books and shows and movies that we see today and it just never gets old. But I suppose in Austen's time, it wasn't old. It was very new and very exciting, especially for women who just embroidered all day and took care of children. (laughs) It's still exciting for us now. (laughs) It's an aesthetic and it brings up feelings of kind of like, ooh, titillation, you know, like um, the reason we love to be scared, right? Kind of brings up emotions. Oh, definitely. And I mean... um, I think like shows like Stranger Things, which I'll I'll admit I haven't seen, but a lot of things like that are really getting people into it. And especially now that Halloween's becoming more and more popular, I've had quite a few of my um, old students asking about Gothic literature. So it's really nice to hear people talking about it again. What did you? What would you say? Like the the famous Gothic literature that everyone would know as a kind of a household name. Would it include things like the Brontes and things like Dracula or is it? Definitely. So I think Dracula's probably, yeah, the household one, Um, the classic with the vampires and everything. Frankenstein, Mary Shelley. It's very interesting when you start looking at how it's divided into male and female Gothic authors. And I know um, one of my lovely colleagues, she's really into gothic literature and she loves Dracula and Northanger Abbey and you know Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights if you sort of move into slightly more modern gothic um, Daphne du Maurier Rebecca if any of your listeners are looking for a really good gothic novel after reading Northanger Rebecca is very interesting I recently finished that one and loved it but I think I recently did a um, movie with that 
with Lily James. Yeah, they did, right, with Army Hammer and, uh, yeah, so Lily oh, James. Yeah, that would be topical, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's more gothic than they, yeah, they bargained for. Go into Army Hammer with gothic <laughs> because he's um, oh, very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> but there is sort of a sexual... I don't know, it's a sexual weirdness, uh, but a sexual undercurrent yeah. in Gothic literature, right? Uh, without a doubt. And I think that was why so many men in society at the time really feared women reading these novels because it was introducing them to concepts that they thought women weren't morally developed enough to handle. Because as we know, you know, especially from <laughs> Pride and Prejudice with Mr. Collins, women were expected to read things like the household manuals, um, moral guides like Four Dice's sermons. You know, it's even ridiculous. The women wouldn't have even read the sermons themselves. They would have had men read it to them. Oh, God. It was even more removed. (laughs) Especially in the 19th century with the invention of the printing press, novels were suddenly so much more accessible and women were becoming more literate at a rate that men were not prepared for. Mm -hmm. You know, introducing them to concepts that they just they didn't want women knowing because well they're harder to control to be honest <laughs> they're like oh no what have we done with this printing press business <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's it's interesting when we look at how all of this is linked to Austen's context and gender especially so I'll dive into that a little bit um feel free to zone out if you don't want all the boring stuff <laughs> <laughs> At the time of Austen writing, there were sort of these little wars going out in society and being the intelligent and observant woman that she was, she would have been acutely aware of these debates and she would have had her opinions because, as we know, Austen did have opinions and she was amazing in that respect. So there were sort of two dominant ways of thinking at the time. Um, There was neoclassicism. And then there was romanticism, and they were sort of considered opposites. And this is a hugely complex thing, so I'm going to anger some other English majors by oversimplifying it. But (laughs) (laughs) neoclassicism was all about rationality and fact, whereas romanticism, it focused on sentimentality. So as you can see, these are opposites. They're very different. And it's basically sense and sensibility in a nutshell. Oh, I love that comparison. Exactly. And it's the perfect example of these two discourses or ways of thinking. We have Eleanor, who represents neoclassicism. She's very rational, but overly so. And then we have Marianne, who's romanticism. She's, you know, very into transcendental, um, almost um, the sublime. Um, very into nature, emotion, expressing yourself. And I think obviously we can only guess at Austen's message through that, but I think Austen never does things in black and white. She never said that being completely rational is the right thing or being completely sentimental is the right thing. Everything's a balance. And I think that's what she brings in through Northanger Abbey. But Gothic literature was sort of an offshoot of Romanticism. So with Romanticism focusing on the sublime and nature and sentiment, this was sort of a darker turn. It was focusing on the darker flights of fancy. And as we see in Northanger Abbey, 
women were associated with that sentimentality, especially in the form of novels. Kind of like, I suppose, reality TV today. (laughs) (laughs) Reading novels was very much a guilty pleasure that was usually associated with female audiences. And at the time, and I would argue, I know controversially today, as soon as it's associated with very strongly with female audiences, it's seen as less valuable. Would you say also the the novels that Catherine Moreland is reading, for example, they all have women's names, right? They're all like Pamela, Louisa. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Tilney makes that point. Like, don't imagine you can cope with my knowledge of Pamela's and Louisa's, right? <laughs> really interesting. And that brings me into this theory of the female Gothic. So the reason I'm bringing up all this context stuff is because it shows that very quickly Gothic literature became associated with women, especially female readers. Even though there were male readers and male authors, it was very, very different to the Gothic novels that were produced primarily for a female audience. And we really see this in Northanger Abbey through the contrast of the female readers where we get Isabella and Catherine and the male readers where we get Mr Tilney and John Thorpe, if we can even call him a reader. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll we'll get on to John Thorpe. I have have lots of thoughts on John Thorpe. (laughs) So this brings up this theory of the female gothic. Now, this was coined in about the 1970s, so it's considered post-feminism. And so it's sometime after these texts were written. This whole theory of the female Gothic was that female authors who wrote fiction in the Gothic genre in the 18th and 19th century were exploring women's feelings of oppression in a melodramatic or figurative sense. So I suppose a good example would be women felt figuratively imprisoned in a patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. So these female authors expressed this through a literal imprisonment by imprisoning their heroines in a literal prison. Now, the reasons for this sort of vary from critic to critic, but they usually attribute it to either a criticism of the violence of male Gothic and society or as a sort of cathartic experience for the female writer sort of letting out all of that oppression. Or even, like, psychoanalysts went a little bit nuts with this actually and they were saying mostly male again was saying that it was coming from almost a fevered mind like these women were so oppressed that it was coming out subconsciously from their mind like that hysteria and um, therefore very damaging to society now there's a huge debate around this theory it's probably one of the biggest debates around gothic literature because so many people rather validly, I think, argue that this did come as a result of feminist critics sort of reflecting their values into a historical context Uh, where it didn't really exist. It's kind of like um, Sherlock Holmes. A lot of people sort of try to psychoanalyse him and diagnose him with all of these modern constructs of um, mental differences and it didn't, those diagnoses didn't exist in the Victorian era. So you can sort of see why people think 
if feminism wasn't really in existence back then, it's hard to put those values into that context. However, I do think there is some merit to it. I think that the theory of the female Gothic focuses very much on the author's intentions. And I think that whether or not the female author wrote a Gothic novel for the purpose of critiquing the treatment of women is something we can only really guess at because we can, o- we can never really know the author's intentions. But what actually interests me a little bit more is the female readers, because I think that a lot of them would have read these novels as a way to deal with their feelings of isolation and lack of control, which we could kind of argue with Northanger Abbey, because we have Isabella and Catherine, well, they're obsessed with their Gothic novels, kind of like a form of escapism, I think. I will just, can I just mirror back what you said to what you said, because I think this is all really interesting when women are writing for women, it goes back to that idea of authorial intent means nothing. If Mm -hmm. women write for women and that book is a hit with women, they've put their finger on something that people need catharsis about perhaps people see people are drawn to it and maybe they can't even articulate why. And I I will say too, that, you know, these, the diagnoses that we were talking about don't, didn't exist then, but did people have those same problems to a large extent? I think we can say yes, unless you're taking kind of an extreme position about all of that. And uh, people can just record what they've observed about other people and that still translates. So I, and I know we've talked a little bit about this before too, if anyone wants to go back and revisit our discussion of Among the Janeites, where people diagnose Darcy <laughs> with all these different things. Yeah, yeah in, in depth, we, we talk about that, that there as well. So, but we're thinking mm-hmm. about, now we've moved on to thinking about the readers, the female readers of the Gothic, right? Yeah, and I think that that's almost more important because it was the yeah. readers that sort of shaped, well, they shaped the literary landscape because whether, I would say that, I mean, women were still intelligent beings and it was still as a means of bringing in at least some money. So they're going to cater to those readers. And I think if women were feeding off those sort of gothic tropes of um, women being oppressed and escaping and, you know, traversing these really harsh landscapes, being pursued by, you know, the handsome rogue who's trying to steal their fortune, if that's what women want, that's what the authors are going to write. So it's a little bit of a cycle. And you can see why especially men in sort of positions of power at the time were a little bit unnerved by this. <laughs> sure, sure. Can you imagine Mr Collins if he was in the same Can you imagine what you would have to say to, to these women? <laughs> Doesn't he he start back in horror and proclaim, oh, I never read novels when Lydia oh, asked yes. it. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, at the time, and I know you love Mansfield Park, and at the time it was very much seen as almost sinful um, fiction because it was a form of deception. It's not real. So to take that fiction to a new level through Gothic literature or through plays, as we see in Mansfield Park, There was a religious standpoint here. And I mean, (laughs) going back to the monk, (laughs) I mean, if if we're going to talk about religion, that is probably the definition of a moral. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, it's just shocking. And I think wasn't he? I, I should have looked this up earlier because I just I hate the monk. But I think he was like fourteen when he was really young when he wrote it. Matthew Lewis. Oh, I haven't, um, looked, I haven't looked into that. Yeah, really strange the way men interacted with the Gothic. But I suppose it would be good to sort of see how all of this context plays into Northanger Abbey. And I think it's really important to start by pointing out that Northanger isn't a Gothic novel. It's a parody of one, which basically means that it's poking fun at certain aspects of society in a humorous way. But through this, I think Austen makes some very interesting observations on the culture of the time. And this is why Northanger is my favourite one of her novels because it tells so much through her wit and humour that when you dig through all the parody, we can actually see some really interesting points about human nature as well as Regency society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we need to remember that given her context and her subtlety because we know she was never very overt with her opinions, we can only ever really guess at her intentions and thoughts on these things. So I might say, you know, Austen was communicating this, but we can never really know. And I think the reason that this episode is so great for this time of year is that the main question that Austen is asking throughout Northanger Abbey is what is actually scary? What is truly scary? What should we really fear? Haunted castles and handsome tyrants and candles being snuffed out in the middle of the night? (laughs) Or should we really be fearing stupid men who tell lies and chase your fortune? And I think we kind of know the answer by the end of the novel. But we know which one Catherine is fearing at the start. And it's meant to be funny. Northanger Abbey is meant to be funny. We're meant to laugh at Catherine. But there's also some points that are very serious and actually scary in the novel. So I suppose I'd like to start by chatting about a few of the characters, about Catherine and Isabella as the main young females, and then I'd love to move on to the males being Mr Tilney and Mr Thorpe. So did you see the um, J.J. Field version of the film? Yes, I love it so much. I've seen it so many times. It is such a good adaptation, and I'll die on this unnecessary hill that (laughs) it's one of the best Austen adaptations. I think especially the way they represent Bath in it, like it's not glamorous, it's horrible, like when her and Mrs Allen first walk in and it's crowded and hot and horrible and there's that creepy old man at the entrance who like kind of leers at her. It shows that it's not, the Regency era wasn't as glamorous and safe as I think we see it. Yeah, that's so so true. What did you think of... um, sort of the way they represented the characters, especially Isabella, because I think that's quite interesting. I love the approach they took with the characters. I the first one of the first things that happens to Catherine when she gets into Bath is there are like two men on the street who walk by and say, there's a little peach that's ripe for the plucking. Oh, and so, oh. Yeah, I know. Right, right from then, I think Andrew Davies put his finger on something because there is a little bit of an aura of sexual threat, not not the kind of attention that would be welcome from to, to Catherine. It's just hearing she's a pretty girl, but a very different kind of now I'm in a world where there's an element. I I do think that they made Isabella Thorpe in the movie version, right? The uh, 
J.J. Field version, a little bit more sexually aware and mature on a literal basis. Um, almost oh, yeah. like, Well, there's that scene with um, Frederick Tilney yeah. where she actually <laughs> where she <laughs> sleeps with him. And, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, there are a few scenes where you're right, they really do hint at that sexual aspect of gothic literature. And I recently read a gothic novel. Um, I know my co- one of my colleagues, Lissity, loved it, Mexican Gothic, and they really picked mm-hmm. up on that strange sexual tension. And I know that a lot of researchers who really do believe in the theory of the female gothic, they talk about that as a representation of the sexual oppression that females were going through at the time. It's interesting because they bring it up with that really weird, cringy bath scene. Yeah. I, I <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to lie, that's the bit where I was like, oh, I, I didn't need that because they were showing Mr. Tilney as the monk and I was like, nah, I, I'm not sure about that representation. But I think Isabella is such an interesting character because, and I know on your previous episodes we all have a strange soft spot for Mary Crawford. We all have soft spot for her because she's quite modern, isn't she? Yes. Like we kind of, we we like her spark. It's almost, I think in that episode you mentioned, she's almost a little bit like Lizzie Bennet where we, we do get that sense of charisma. But Isabella has that and people don't celebrate it. Right. And I think through Northanger Abbey, we get two very different young women who are going on that journey. And Catherine's journey really mirrors the gothic heroine's journey. She starts off in a very small, isolated town, and it's that form of the Bildungsroman where she's learning about the world. She's growing and being introduced to some of the dangers, like you said in that first line when she arrives in Bath with those two young men and she realises, okay, I'm not in my little village anymore. I'm not in my safe space, especially being removed from her parents. And Isabella, in contrast, she's very aware of the world. And they both are so immersed within that female Gothic literature because they bond through Anne Radcliffe. Have you read any Radcliffe? I have not. I actually heard Devony Lozer speak and she said, don't read Radcliffe. Don't do it to yourself. Oh, it's so painful, apparently. And she's like, there's so many other gothic literature options for you. So anyway, to answer your question, I I, I was I was going to be brave enough to do it, but then I just didn't. <laughs> Honestly, and I feel a little bit guilty because I'm so involved in research of gothic literature. But no, I haven't finished her books either. <laughs> I started when I first started researching Northanger years and years ago. I thought I'm going to read all of those books that Isabella lists. And no, I didn't because <laughs> the Mysteries of Udolfo, look, if you're ready to dedicate many, many hours to the description of landscapes, go for it. But <laughs> I'm sure there's probably an abridged version. But it is interesting because when it comes to the whole theory of that female Gothic and that representation of female oppression through that figurative sense, Anne Radcliffe is the pioneer. And as soon as you read anything on the female Gothic, Mrs. Radcliffe will come up. Well, that's the whole basis of Catherine's imaginings, isn't it? It's It all starts with the mysteries of Udolfo. I remember reading 
some really interesting criticism on it, actually. And I know that the main heroine in it, she's, she, you know, she travels across the harsh landscape. She's hunted by, you know, rugged men. And a lot of these female Gothic novels, they were searching, you know, for a long lost mother. And usually they're imprisoned in some sort of castle. And the article was talking about, it was a very long article talking about how the tombs that she's imprisoned in represents like the womb of mothers. And so it's, you know, going into that female landscape and it's described as being very warm and isolated and dark. And wow, their analysis was that that was the author trying to liken it to a female space. I'm not going to lie, I do think that that is taking it a bit far, but you can sort of see why it's such a controversial topic because people do take it that step a little bit too far maybe. I have to say one thing too at this juncture about lover's vows because that is about a son trying to finding and reuniting with his mother and just like the book takes it and makes it sexual because they're embracing. You could say that perhaps it's the same thing going on with the narrative. Oh, I want to find my mother, but actually it's um, it's also doing something for me on an adult sexual level to be reunited if you're going to get very Freudian about it, right? Oh, but it's interesting that you mentioned Freud because that was a lot of the psychoanalysis of the female Gothic. When I mentioned a lot of those people who brought out a lot of papers on the cause and the root of female Gothic being from that sort of fevered mind of the oppressed woman, I think that was informed a lot by Freud's philosophy. People get very, very worked up about this. (laughs) <laughs> and I suppose there are people who have very strong opinions and I suppose that's why I'm stepping back and I'm saying I'm not sure and I want to focus more <laughs> on the reader. <laughs> because I don't know the author's intentions, but I will say Anne Radcliffe was very acutely aware of her audience and she was very acutely aware that what she was producing was being met with havoc, really, because women were going nuts for it. And as we see through Catherine and Isabella, they, it was almost, addi- well, they saw it as addictive because, mm-hmm. well, like I said, the, their existence would be so boring. And this would be their form of escape and excitement and they'd get some adrenaline and even those sexual elements, that's something that they never would have really spoken about or encountered except in those I don't know if you've ever seen those strange instruction moral manuals that they would have been given. And I make a point about this too, when we're talking about Catherine all of a sudden getting into a space where there's a sexual threat, these women are not able to step outside and experiment with that in any way, shape, or form. Even if they're in an urban environment, they're constantly on guard against any form of impropriety, much less the actual rate ability for someone to pen, like penetrate those defenses. But have you ever read um, Evelina, which is the Fanny Burney novel? Of, it's like She's a contemporary of Austin. Mm-hmm. But in that book, the, the threat is very much a sexual threat. She goes to Vauxhall Gardens mm-hmm. and she has to escape from someone who's trying to assault her, which was like a real thing that could happen if you were around London unattended. And that was a thing you had to worry about. And Austin's so different because she's showing you a different kind of evil or a different kind of horrible thing that can happen to you. But sexual threat's also very real. So it it makes sense that this is a way that they, this is the only way they have to engage with something that they're not allowed to touch, that they have to be afraid of, that they have to constantly guard against, right? Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. And it is addictive. <laughs> oh, definitely. And well, we see it today. We, I mean, I'm personally not a fan, but people watch horror films because it gives them that thrill. So you yeah. can only yeah. imagine if someone was as isolated as these Regency women were, the thrill that it would give them. It would be oh, yeah. absolutely mind-blowing. And I think feminist critics were completely correct in thinking that this really changed the female psyche in that it introduced them to a new form of freedom that they just wouldn't have known before. And I think that's why it erupted so quickly and why society was almost quite frightened by it. And I'm glad you mentioned Evelina because I think that's a book that not many people are familiar with and they really should be, especially if you're a fan of Austen, do go and read it. It is wonderful and I studied it at university and if you're interested in this theory of the female gothic it's not gothic at all but the way Bernie represents female oppression within that society is really interesting because it's not just through the naive protagonist Evelina which I think we could probably liken to Catherine Morland a little bit but it's also through the treatment of older women And we actually get that quite a bit in Northanger Abbey through the representation of Mrs. Allen as being almost a little bit irrelevant in society. She's Mm -hmm. seen as very silly. You know, her life is all about fashion and she goes on about muslin. And we all laugh at that. But in a sense, should should we be laughing? This poor woman doesn't really, she doesn't have kids. (laughs) That's all she has, yeah. Yeah. If, If you don't have kids in Regency society, what's your purpose as a woman? Right. And so I think that's that's quite sad. So Evelina is a great example of that expression of female oppression in a novel. Yeah. I will make I will make two one quick note about if you do decide to read Evelina, expect to touch on anti-Semitism because overspending oh, talked about that. Yes. That's yeah. very oh, cool. the it's almost a Georgette Hare-esque the way Evelina also parodies um, these rich gentil- gentility, way mm-hmm. overspending, way outpacing their income, just throwing money away so irresponsibly on big parties. And so it's quite Hare-esque, like it's like reading a oh. hair in some ways. <laughs> so, but um, that, that, as you know, um, is in hair and it's also in Evelina. So just, just be aware of that. It's not too terribly bad, but it isn't there as an element of the story. Oh, definitely. It's interesting you should bring up Heyer because I think it was a Georgette Heyer novel that very first got me into Gothic literature. Oh, really? Yeah, so The Talisman uh, Ring. Yeah, yeah. Was the first sort of Gothic-esque, it's not necessarily a Gothic novel, but it sort of dealt with those tropes. And I think I read that when I was about 13. My grandmother oh, wow. gave me a copy. <laughs> and um, obviously I didn't really understand it at 13, but I loved it. Abby, <laughs> I mean... Heyer is a great novelist. I mean, you do start to see a lot of repetition, but if you like your Regency romances, she's a good one to explore. And I think a lot of her novels, Isabella and Catherine, would probably adore. So, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> it happened at the time. But it's interesting Sorry, that Catherine. It, it does her journey does mirror the Gothic heroine's journey, and we talk about how this is very much a positive thing. Well, we believe nowadays in modern times that it's a positive thing that these women were being introduced to concepts of danger through Gothic literature. But 
I don't know how much Austin supports that. And this is very much, again, guesswork. But I mentioned at the beginning, especially through Sense and Sensibility, Austin never says anything is black and white. And we see Isabella and Catherine, they're reading novels, and we get that whole chapter on the defence of the novel. Mm-hmm. And that was hugely controversial for a female author of that time to say novels are not a subpar form of literature. She was saying novels, you know, express the deepest desires of the heart and empathy and all these important things. That was revolutionary. And she's saying it's a good thing that Catherine and Isabella are reading these novels. And Mr Tilney says, oh, yes, I love novels. And she represents that as a means of us connecting to his character. And then conversely with John Thorpe, oh, I never read novels except this horrible one. But (laughs) Catherine takes it that one step too far. And I think although it's meant to be humorous, it is a little bit of a warning. And I know that early criticism or early analysis of Northanger Abbey, there were some, and they're a bit hard to dig up now because I think a lot of people discounted these critiques and research with feminist theory when it came through. But there are some early writings about it from older researchers who argued that Northanger Abbey is a moral story and it's teaching young girls not to be like Catherine. Do Mm. not do this. I think that that's an oversimplistic view. I think that Austen is warning against being too sentimental, like that whole sense and sensibility. But, again, she's asking that question, what should we really fear? And there's that scene where Mr Tilney is, like Eleanor, I think he represents that neoclassic thinking. He's very rational. and when we find we come to that scene where it's so awkward when she says, oh, well, you know, I'm in your dead mother's bedroom. And <laughs> when she's in, yeah, I can't even say it without cringing. Like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm in your dead mother's bedroom and sort of the suspicion comes out and she says, I, I kind of think that, and obviously this is me paraphrasing, I think that your father has either murdered or imprisoned your mother. And he says, <laughs> Think of the country in which we live. And he says, we're in England, we're Christians. And he's basically saying, be rational. We live in a safe society. But do you think it was as safe as he thinks it is? No, it's totally naive what he's saying. And there is a sexual threat. There are these threats. Maybe not the exact ones Catherine thinks of, but that's what Gothic literature is touching at. And that's why it's so compelling is because they're surrounded by these threats. Exactly. And I think she was showing Mr. Tilney to be naive. And obviously, if you were to say that, let's say someone just watched the movie and you said, oh, yes, Mr. Tilney's naive, people would go, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's not how it's going. Yeah, he's the voice of reason. But again, with Austin, we have to read between the lines because he says, and they also talk about, you know, that horrible thing to come out in England and it turns out it's a novel. And that's all in the scene where they go on their walk. And Catherine says to Eleanor, yes, I hear something horrible is to come out in London and murder. And (laughs) Eleanor gets really freaked out and she's like, there's going to be a murder in London? Should we, you know, (laughs) call the police? (laughs) What what to do? And straight away, Henry Tilney goes, oh, no, she's talking about a book. And he finds it all very funny. But those things were happening. And in a way, 
I think you could argue Mr Tilney is too much one way. He's seeing the world as this safe space. Yes, my father is a bad man, but he's not that bad, Catherine. <laughs> right. Catherine's saying, oh, this is bad, vampires, murder, um, imprisonment. But Austin's saying, again, what is frightening? What is spooky? Because, I mean, I know this is themed around Halloween. Is it the castles? Is it all of this? Or is there actually a real threat in society? And that's when we see General Tilney. And I think the portrayal of male characters is very interesting to analyse in Northanger Abbey. And I'm going to be very upfront here. I'm a huge Mr Tilney fan. He's my favourite <laughs> Austin hero. I think he's hilarious, but there's still some fault there. But I think he, he also goes through a journey of realisation because in the end he even admits to it and he says, you were right. He says to her, yes, you thought that my father <laughs> murdered or imprisoned my mother, but he did in a way. And he goes on to basically acknowledge that females were isolated and oppressed by cold men who were fortune seekers. And for a young man to admit that in the time is huge. And Mr Tilney, he would have been such a unique character of the time. Because not only did he read novels, that that's a big admission because, you know, it's showing that he doesn't have that same male superiority that John Thorpe does. But to say he was wrong and acknowledge that males do have that unfair advantage in the process of marriage and that that's what happened with his parents, he goes through that journey of learning as well as Catherine. And it's like they both sort of meet in the middle at the end. And it's a really lovely conclusion. And some people don't like the way Northanger is kind of wrapped up in very neat packages. <laughs> and that is actually a very deliberate move on Austin's part, I think, because when we have the female gothic, usually everything is wrapped up in a nice little neat package and it does almost always result in marriage. So that was her way of saying, here's the gothic heroine's journey, not literal journey because again it's a parody but the real threats in the end are very different because it is still a realistic novel but when we get the male gothic it was very different so a lot of Anne Radcliffe's novels and the female gothic novels they ended in that happy ending that conclusion that sense of fulfillment which I think women would have valued otherwise it would have been very very depressing for them at the time they needed something. Whereas male gothic, they wanted to be a bit more, dare I say, edgy. It was always ending on a very, or kind of like a cliffhanger. And it would leave you with a moral decision. You had to work out what was happening. Or it ended just on a completely inconclusive note where I don't even know if the author knew what their decision was. <laughs> they did, really. Because making people think was their intention. And that brings me to The Monk. So can I ask, what brought you to read The Monk? <laughs> I want to tell the story about The Monk. Can I, tell, can I say one thing before we get too far away from what you said? Is I'm really, really excited about what you said. I always saw Catherine as a parallel in a way to Sir Edward Denham in the fragment of Sanditon. Because I thought Austin was saying in both cases, there is a way to misread a novel. 
Catherine sees herself as a heroine. He sees himself as a, as a Gothic villain. But now you've sort of opened my mind to the fact that Catherine was so into Gothic novels because she could see a parallel to re reality. Uh, yeah. She was just misidentifying what was actually scary, but she could feel the fear. Where Sir Edward Denham may, may be more of a male Gothic novelist's uh, <laughs> kind of I point of view. <laughs> Definitely. And I think even though Catherine Morn, she is very naive, I, I really love her. I think oh, she's a beautiful, real character. And I think that even though we're meant to laugh at her throughout the novel, Austen just tips her hat to her at the end by saying she wasn't completely wrong. Her instincts were right. Even though she's this naive girl, which, let's be honest, most of the Gothic heroines were, she's got that sense of intuition. And, I mean, she was right about Thorpe, so. I have to... Also, before I go, we go too much farther, uh, shout out to a friend of mine, Lexi, um, who is a friend on Twitter and has form has reread Northanger recently and formed an attachment to John Thorpe. She I is now a huge, <laughs> I know, she's a huge John Thorpe fan girl. Yes, yes. Um, there's so much, there's so much humor in the way he's portrayed, and there's so much inherent masculinity um, uh, of, a, of an extremely goofy kind. Um, sometimes we're attracted to the man who needs rehabilitation in a way. I'll have to ask oh, Lexi more and, and repeat her answers to this uh, and, and give her space to actually explain. But um, I just wanted to to shout out to her, but also to say, and are you going to talk about John Thorpe more as a proto-Gothic villain? Lexi, please reach out to me because I need to know your thoughts here because I have never heard of anyone actually liking John Thorpe. Um, I will say, I remember when I got to teach this, it was um, we were allowed to teach an Austen novel of our choosing for the 19th century novel once. And of course, I went straight to Northanger Abbey. And you know what? 17 year old girls can be very insightful. And one of my girls puts her hand up. And she says, you know what he is, miss? And I said, what is he? He's one of those guys that pulls up at the traffic lights and revs his engine and then talks for 15 minutes about his car on the first date. <laughs> yeah. And it's so true because he's talking, oh, my horses and my carriage and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Honestly, men haven't, young men haven't changed. And gosh, those girls got into it. So, yeah, Lexi, please, I would love to talk to you. <laughs> I need this perspective. <laughs> I always heard him framed as the gothic villain, and this is not my idea, and I'm repeating it from, a, am sure, a presentation I've seen or someone else's excellent point, so I apologize for plagiarizing that person. I can't credit them. But he does, in a sense, abduct Catherine by not letting her out of the carriage. And that fear of this person's got me in his control is actually really there for Catherine. I'm really glad you brought that up because I actually, um, in a research paper I did a while ago, I was speaking about those sort of parallels between real danger and the gothic danger. And I think that that is one of Austen's moments of making a comment. This is a female in the real world where she is completely out of control and at the physical mercy of a man. And I, <laughs> sorry, I'm remembering reading this scene with that same class. And she says, Mr. Thorpe, stop. And he just laughs and makes an odd quote, noises. Strange, odd, or strange noises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow, that really makes 
everyone reading so uncomfortable. It's just like, what are you doing? And I think I, I also read a really interesting. So I had a discussion about someone with someone who specialised in Gothic li- literature at Macquarie University, and she argued that the whole discussion of driving in the open air carriage was very interesting. So as we know, there were different types of carriages at the time. And you would have the enclosed carriage and then you'd have the open air carriage. And we see in Northanger, Catherine's not sure what's appropriate. Society, you know, judges for these things. And she asks Mrs. Allen whether, you know, should I go with this man that I've only met twice in an open air carriage and she just oh you know whatever you like dear and she's meant to be sort of instructing Catherine but she's useless so that doesn't help (laughs) society would talk if they saw a man and a woman in an open air carriage like with Marianne and Willoughby it's almost a proclamation of an oncoming engagement Mm -hmm. because you're publicly saying I am in this space with a man, which, of course, in in modern times, that doesn't make sense to us. But enclosed carriages were a different matter because that was behind doors. And in Regency society, they were so focused on public appearance. And it's what she does by getting into that carriage with John Thorpe. There was this comment that's made where Miss Thorpe goes on about getting her dress dirty. This researcher that I spoke with at the university, she was a very staunch supporter of the theory of the female Gothic. And she actually argued that that whole metaphor of Mrs. Allen going on and on about um, Catherine getting her dress dirty was actually symbolism for women becoming dirty by being associated with these men in public. Mm -hmm. And, again, I don't know whether that was Austen's intention, but it's an interesting theory. And... When it comes to John Thorpe as the gothic villain, I think that there are two schools of thought there. My thinking is that he actually isn't. I think that he is the realistic villain. So he is very much the villain of the novel, Northanger Abbey. But what about Mr Tilney's father? Mm -hmm. So here we have two men with bad intentions who are working against Catherine, the heroine, and when we look at that gothic trope, General Tilney is presented as the gothic villain and he's seen as the threat. But who do you think the real threat is in the book? Like if you were to look at those two men, who, which one is more dangerous to Catherine, do you think? She, she would wind up tied to Thorpe because mm. he wants her money and her life would be essentially ruined yeah. i think is the real is the primary threat that we're glad that she avoids yeah. but i think i think general tilney is very lucky that she likes henry so that we don't see that outcome for her as being awful he still is sort of controlling isolating and wants her money in a similar motive to thorpe mm-hmm. right so it's like the evil that he represents is is less uh vampires and such and more just the financial threat that that every Austin heroine is navigating, right? Exactly. And I think that's what Austin's saying is he is a threat, but in a lot more of a realistic sense than Catherine realises. Realises, yes. And when we look at it, this whole plot of deception 
because they're both after her fortune, as most gothic villains are after the heroine's fortune, but Catherine doesn't have a fortune. Mm-hmm. So General Tilney wouldn't have even taken an interest or a liking in Catherine if it hadn't been for John Thorpe's bluster. The fact that he reads the monk is an interesting point. So what, what did you think of the monk? Do you want to sort of give a little bit of background information, what's it about and all of that? Yeah, so, um, and your question is how, how I came to read it. I I think I've told this story before, so apologies to anyone who's hearing it again, but I used to live in D.C. and the Smithsonian would do a lot of interesting events, many of them about Austin. They, they got I guess, good attendance that, you know, everyone loves an Austin event. And so my father-in-law was, wanted to do something with just me and him, you know, kind of a bonding thing. And he must have brought it up to me or Kevin and, and either I forgot or Kevin didn't convey it to me, but he wanted to go to a Smithsonian event for me. And so one night at dinner, he turns to me and he says, oh, are we still going to that thing on Thursday? And I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I just kind of gaped at him. And he said, you know, the monk. And I thought, oh, it must be an Austin Smithsonian event about the Gothic Gothic literature and specifically the monk. So I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I had a week. I read read the monk so I'd be prepared so I could, you know, bond with my father-in-law. Show up to this event. It's about the painter Edvard Monk. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's the story of how I, 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 um, agonized my way through this this unreadable novel (laughs) for no good reason well it's good because now I have context right I was expecting it to be a little sexier than it was because of that clip in the Davies adaptation Northanger Abbey where the linnet is nibbling her breasts and wanton play or whatever (laughs) I can't stand it but <laughs> all I can think is thank goodness that you were wrong because can you imagine having to go through those sort of scenes next to your father-in-law? That would be torture. It would be. And and you know, so for those who haven't read it, um, the monk be is John Thorpe says the monk be- begins very holy. Um, or no, it, it's Isabella who's like, ah, the monk begins very holy, but then he goes, gets hold of a magic branch and into Antonia's bedroom, <laughs> right? But that that does happen. So, it, but it's a Catholic monk who has the sin of pride and arrogance. He's the most holy, the mm-hmm. most observant, the most pure. Then he meets, of course, Antonia and starts getting go, trying to. It, it's funny because he doesn't actually seem that hard to crack at all. It's almost like he oh. immediately decides that he wants this and he can have it because he's so holy, even mm-hmm. though that's going to undo. And it, it's kind of weird. It's really, really moralistic, really kind of unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have a happy ending, like you're saying, the male gothic. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, that's what I remember. I remember, too, does it have something to do with some kind of inquisition thing because they keep bringing up the auto da fe which i Mm. still don't actually know what that means i didn't care enough to look it up but he's like at the end he faces some kind of catholic examination or something well i'm going to be completely honest here so i was meant to study it and (laughs) (laughs) i i did read most of it but i didn't finish it because i think i was i was young i was in university and 
it actually disturbed me a little bit too it's, much. It's and upsetting. I it. So I hope it's okay. I'm going to give a few spoilers and also oh, a little bit, little bit of a trigger warning because it's not an overly nice discussion, but I think it's really important for the context when it comes to the fact that John Thorpe has had said that he enjoys this book. So there is the monk and he is trying to seduce Antonia and it's actually, I think it's, he has like a page boy or an assistant or something who ends up being a woman but is actually, I'm pretty sure, Satan in disguise yeah. who's taking him towards seducing Antonia. And we find out later that Antonia is, in fact, his sister. So this book, yeah. Well, I hope I'm correct because, like I said, it's been a long time. I'm sure you're correct. It's been a long time since I read it too. (laughs) I don't know. Someone can comment and say, um, I'm wrong, please do. But there is those themes of violence and rape and incest, which are confronting to us today. And... Honestly, I think most people wouldn't associate it with the Regency era. Um, I think a lot of people think it was very proper, very moral. And the fact that John Thorpe says to Catherine outwardly, oh, yes, I don't read novels except the monk, that is a very subtle, like it's one line. But through that one line and that one reference to a book, Austen is telling us everything we need to know about John Thorpe. He then says, oh, but if I were... so." I think the conversation in this scene starts as Catherine is just trying to have a conversation with her brother's friend. It's awkward. And she's like, what do I bring up? Do I bring up the weather? And she thinks, oh, I know. What am I loving at the moment? I'm loving The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. And she says, oh, Mr. Thorpe, have you read The Mysteries of Udolpho? And he says, oh, Lord, no, I would never read a novel. You know, that's I leave all that to Isabella. That's women's rubbish. So, no. And he says, except I did read The Monk and I enjoyed that. And she, obviously, she doesn't know what The Monk is yet at this point. (laughs) And then he says, but if I were to read a novel, it would be one of Mrs. Radcliffe's. And Catherine says to him rather hesitantly, she says, well, Mrs. Radcliffe wrote The Mysteries of Udolpho. So straight away, we're shown that he's just all, he's just full of it. (laughs) <laughs> he said, oh no I would never read the mysteries of Udolpho but if I were to I, I would read Anne Radcliffe and Catherine's like but that is Anne Radcliffe so I think through this we could actually probably surmise has he actually read the monk maybe but honestly at, at this point has he even read a book before I don't know um, he's too busy talking about himself and his carriages but the fact that he is so full of all of that and that she is associating him with the monk straight away sets up that contrast between the gothic villain and himself as a representation of that because as stupid as he is he is dangerous and I actually think that's a big comment that even someone who has zero intelligence zero tact zero social understanding he is still dangerous to Catherine in the fact that he is a male. He doesn't have to be that charming, calculating, manipulative, um, almost vampiric villain in the Gothic novels that has that sort of depth of character. He's just a local idiot 
but he's still dangerous simply because of his gender. So really, that, that is the danger. That's what Austin is saying is most scary. It's not all about the castles and the candles and everything. It is real life things that we need to be not necessarily scared of that aren't scary, but we need to be mindful of and that young women need to be mindful of. And that's why Catherine has to take that journey out of her little bubble and her little village because women need to know what's out there and they need to be aware of that and find themselves in their own understanding of what is real and what is not. Have you seen the 1980s version adaptation of Northanger Abbey? The one with the saxophone? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I think now that I think back on, I remember talking to Lexi about that adaptation and how excellent the actor is who plays John Thorpe in portraying this sort of bonhomie sort of like expansiveness and, and being, being just sort of this conversational juggernaut. Also, in that version, I believe he has some explicit scheming with Isabella. Like they're trying to get together and maybe have a little conversation about, Mm. oh, let's talk about behind the scenes that we're both trying to lock these Morelands down in matrimony. Uh, If if I'm remembering right. (laughs) Because Isabella is a danger to James Moreland. Not quite in the same way as John Thorpe is to Catherine, because James really has the power of choice. So he yeah, he's still very naive, which is interesting. Yeah, mm. is 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 James Moreland uh, a gothic heroine parallel in and of himself? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, he's actually probably i I would say he's the real victim. He's the one that really loses out the most, apart from General Tilney. <laughs> right. Yeah. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I was fascinated too by what you said, not to get too far away from the Gothic, but I have never heard Mary Crawford and Isabella Thorpe compared in this exact way before, but they are exact parallels in what they're trying to do is get the man they like, who is also the rich man. And if they can't do that, they're going to reject that man to try in favor. Of, now, Isabella... I, I think the reason that we don't root for her as much as we we all appreciate Mary's general intelligence about social interactions, which is oh, something yeah. that Austin prizes so, so very highly. Are you good company? Are you funny? Do you understand what's up? And <laughs> Isabella is just the teen who has a few tricks in her bag to be charming, like pshaw yeah. nonsense, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Surface fun friend stuff, but mm-hmm. not doesn't go deeper than that. Yeah, and her contrast with Eleanor as well. Um, yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I actually hadn't really compared them before. That was sort of an afterthought. But when I think about it, I think the reason we also like Mary so much more is that with Isabella, there's a lot more fakery. Yeah. And she's so intensely frustrating because It's these huge profusions of adoration for Catherine. And it's just all surface level. It's all a display. Whereas Mary is very outward in her appearances. And what you see is actually what you get, apart from her sort of machinations for marriage. I think she says something along the lines of, I'm I'm always sort of selfish and I always get what I want. But, you know, there's 
there's nothing that can be done about it, so you may as well forgive me. She's very aware of those faults and she doesn't hide them, where Isabella is, you know, very, she she presents it under this modest, demure, sort of a little bit flirty, and I think that's very frustrating, especially for modern audiences. But in the newer adaptation of Northanger, I think that we have maybe a bit more sympathy for her character. Do you, do you think than in the book? She she is in in her own way then manipulated by Captain Tilney, and the punishment doesn't quite seem to fit the crime. Yeah, especially in the movie where she is taken advantage of sexually under mm-hmm. false pretenses, which is a horrible thing to go through and so despite being sort of grasping and and false to James and in general just an inauthentic person Mm. really has quite a fall so she really does pay you know for Mm. that inauthenticity and that immorality yeah definitely actually so now that you mentioned it so in the movie she is taken advantage of and you know afterwards she says to him so are we engaged yeah and he says, you know, put your things on and get out. Your friends will be missing you. And I do think as an audience we feel, I felt like, oh, that whole thing, you know, um, because she's now ruined. Right. And I, I don't even want to know what would have come after that. But, you know, rejected from society, um, she probably would very much struggle to find a decent husband after that. And both Isabella and Catherine are taken advantage of by men in terms of for Catherine it's General Tilney after her fortune and John Thor and then Isabella's taken advantage of by Frederick Tilney but Catherine because she comes to that realization of the world in a different way she gets her happy ending Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's Henry Tilney is the difference there but it, it is interesting that I think we have a bit more sympathy for Isabella in the movie and I think the actress that plays her is incredible. It's so good. Everybody loves um it does such Ka- a good job. I, oh, her name always slips my mind. Carrie. Carrie. Carrie Mulligan. Mulligan, yes. Yes. She's uh, excellent. I wanted to say too, um, I forgot, I forgot that in her own way she becomes the victim. Mm. I almost wonder, and this is quite Austin-esque, Catherine is drawn to Henry because he's clever and funny. Mm. Uh, and, which is their qualities that Austin prizes. So yeah. I love that she yeah. rewards that sort of kind of the same with him, Henry Crawford, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk about how attractive it is just to be funny and charismatic, right? Whereas when Isabella loves James and then Captain Tilney, Frederick Tilney, right? It's about their money. And mm. so that in the author's setup of what kind of lessons we're learning here, <laughs> there's yeah. no there's no redeeming quality about that at no. all um mm. so but yeah I, I i i don't want to be too harsh on her i forgot actually to the point that she is then victimized there is if you if you read ever go back and read the hugh thompson illustrated versions of austin's novels the one that came mm. ones that came out in the late 19th century one of the lines that thompson chose to illustrate was the line that henry tilney says to catherine when catherine says hey henry your brother seems to be seducing Isabella away from my brother. Shouldn't you say something to him? This is not going to end well. And Henry's like, oh, it's no big deal. He'll go back to his regiment and the regiment will toast uh, Isabella Thorpe for a month. 
and make her sort of the butt of a collective male joke that um, he, you know, this is a funny crush that, that we all know is pretend, uh, right? Um, and so we're just going to tease him about it. I don't know. So but in I that wonder, way, I felt icky about it too. Yeah. And I wonder if that's showing again, Henry Tilney's naivety of sort of the dangers for women in society at that point, because yeah, you know, he'll go back to his regiment and it'll all be fine. Yes, it'll be fine for his brother, but what about Isabella? Right. And she doesn't press him on that at all. No, she doesn't. And I think he's very much, I know that the character of Henry Tilney does actually get on a lot of people's nerves. A lot of people say he's a mansplainer and he's full of himself. <laughs> I strongly disagree because I love him and I will stay blind to his faults um, as much as I can. But I think. At that point, he is naive. And, again, he's seeing the world as a very rational, safe place when it's not, especially for women, because he's coming from a position of privilege both by class and by gender. And through this whole journey in the novel, he sees the world as a little bit more dangerous as well as Catherine again. You're reading him as naive in that particular context, which I think is a generous interpretation. I think you could also just read him as like, he doesn't care about Isabella. Why should he? Uh, you yeah, know, she's- and That's probably my English teacher brain reading into it too much, because I think you're right. Why would he care about Isabella? And this this in a way, he doesn't care about his mother either. Well, he she'll get her justice. Oh, no, I agree completely. And I think that, well, I know when I taught it, um, I don't think any of my students felt any sympathy for Isabella because yeah. they just hated her throughout the whole novel. But I think when we look at the context and what Isabella's doing, do you reckon we could argue possibly, and I'd like your opinion on this, that Isabella is not so much a villain that she's a victim of a society where women need to marry well to survive? Yes. And her annoying inauthenticity, Maggie once said this about Mary Crawford, and it also applies to Isabella Thorpe. You know, Isabella is very mannered, and she's sort of putting on a front, like like many young women will do, is sort of try to be cool. And mm. when you feel cool and you have a friend who you think is uncool, you become a mentor. You try to make them cool like you. You're yeah. like, be with me. I'm going to show you how to be cool. Get in, loser. You know, yes, exactly. <laughs> mean girl. Isabella is definitely a mean girl. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but you know what? I think that's why I love Catherine is because, yes, she's naive and she's very impressionable in some ways, but she's genuine and she actually stands her ground. She She stands up at that point where they're all, and oh, and John Thorpe so infuriatingly says, don't worry, I've gone and changed your plans for you because she's meant to go on a walk with Eleanor. And then they say, oh, we're going to go to, you know, Blaze Castle. We're going to reunite for our little trip to Blaze Castle and all of that. And he goes and on her behalf says, oh, Miss Morland has to be detained. Can you do your walk later? Again, that's another situation where Catherine is at the mercy of rumour and speculation. And I think that's another danger for women that Austen is exploring through that because all of this speculation, all of this talk between men is a completely different world. 
And we actually see this a lot in Emma as well, where Mr Knightley warns Emma. He says, look, Mr Elton is not who you think he is. I've heard what he says to other men. And Emma says, well, no, I'm correct in my thoughts. But really, that's an unfair advantage because the male world and the female world were so separate at that time. And the way men acted and how open they were with their intentions behind doors with other men, women had no access to that. They didn't have knowledge of that. And that's why Emma incorrectly thinks that Mr Elton is, you know, this annoying yet decent gentleman. So too does Catherine have no knowledge of that. And she tries to presume the best. And I just I do think that that's quite an interesting take on it because all of these machinations, all the things that John Thorpe and General Tilney are discussing, Catherine has no power over her own image and how she's known to people because men have the power of over a woman's reputation. And they've made all these assumptions and no one has even thought to say anything. Maybe it would be indelicate, but even to check up on Catherine's actual circumstances, they're so vain. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people see Henry Tilney as playing into that. He looks down on her and sort of takes control and there's very much a power imbalance there. And I can I can see where they're coming from with that because he he does have that sort of charismatic, showy personality. But I think by the end of the novel, he's bound by duty. And that's what, and I think this is Austen's view, that's what differentiates a decent man from an indecent man. It's that he is bound by duty to Catherine and not to his father. And that's another really interesting Gothic trope because in Gothic literature, there was a huge theme sort of pervasive through a lot of the novels of this idea of inheritance and parental duty. Usually the young man was in conflict with a father figure and women were often oppressed by a pseudo father figure or a father figure. And again, it was this sense of duty to tradition And a lot of this actually came through with even prophecies and curses. It was the past controlling the present. Something has happened in the past that is shaping the present and that adherence to tradition and duty and honour. And Henry actually breaks away from that and he says, I don't owe my father anything at this point. I have committed to Catherine through affection And therefore, I'm following through with that and I'm going to give up my inheritance and I'm going to give up my duty to my father and make my own way. And in that sense, that really deviates from that classic Gothic trope because he's breaking away from the past and moving towards a more modern, well, a more modern relationship dynamic. And yes, there is an age difference. So obviously, we are going to see a little bit of a wisdom imbalance there and he's being a male who's been exposed to the world a lot more, but he's still giving that up for her. So I know I'm becoming a bit of a Mr. Tilney apologist here, but um, I'll take that with pride. <laughs> I was going to, um, for the record, state that Austin sort of calls him to account a little bit on the mansplaining front with her whole passage about 
and I think she might be referring to Evelina, but correct me if I'm wrong. The natural attractions of female imbecility have been set forth by the pen of a sister author. <laughs> I know. But it's a natural male failing. He is older. He wants to feel, he's, not, he's still young. He wants to feel smart. He wants to be looked up to. That's a natural role that he wants to step into. Mm-hmm. Right. So he likes yeah, the sound of his own voice. But don't we all? <laughs> Again, a lot of people, so there are passages in Northanger Abbey that if you take it too literally, a lot of people say, I can't believe she said that. That's so against women. You know, I think at one point there's a line where she says, Catherine was unaware of the power that a pretty face and a naive mind had on a man. And people think automatically, well, that's Austen's view that women should be pretty and naive, but it's not. Austen was almost always being just a little bit sarcastic, a little bit snarky, and she's poking fun at what other people believe. Right. right. So I do think you are completely right, and she's calling out Mr Tilney. She's saying, (laughs) look, yeah, he's a great guy, especially compared to Mr Thorpe. He's a great guy, but he's still a guy. (laughs) And she's saying men, men can be like that. And she's saying it doesn't make him a bad guy, but, you know, and he does learn to love Catherine for more than that. And he, he does by the end, not just because she loves him at first, which is what makes her so attractive to him, right? Yeah. But also he loves the excellencies of her character by the end. Exactly. Do you think Austin is also a little bit skewering us when she says pretty and naive is also what you expect a gothic heroine to be? in order to be loved, uh, because you've read so many of these stories. I do think so. And I think Catherine starts off as very much a model of the Gothic heroine. And, I mean, the very first line of the book is no one who had seen Catherine Morland in her infancy (laughs) would have supposed her to have been an heroine. So great. Um, Yeah. And I I shouldn't know that word for word, but I do. Oh, yeah. Straight away she sets up that Catherine, to begin with, is an unlikely heroine, but then she starts to appreciate the finer things and care about what she looks like, and this is her journey into that. And that is what we expect if, I mean, and as I said at the time, those Gothic novels were seen as almost addictive. They would have seen basically a stock standard Gothic heroine would have been the same in every novel but with a different name. (laughs) (laughs) And she would have been very pure. And I think that's probably very pure, demure. And, I mean, if you want to look at all the tropes for that gothic heroine, it's all in the first chapter of Northanger Abbey, I think. It says, you know, she nurses little sick animals back to health and (laughs) roses from the garden. And she's like, Catherine's not like that. She loves dirt and rolling down the hill and cricket and (laughs) not cricket. Was it baseball or cricket? Yeah, they say baseball, yeah. Yeah, that's the very first um, mention of that in um, a novel, by the way. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) So I think straight away she's saying Catherine is not what you're going to expect. Even though she goes through the whole journey of the gothic heroine, she's different. I am um, just keeping an eye on time. Was there any last point that you absolutely wanted to make sure to make or should we sort of wrap up and talk okay. about next steps if you have any other reading recommendations or how people yeah, can learn well, more? 
I think if people are very interested in sort of looking at the female gothic um, and they want to move away some, from sort of those stock standard Dracula, don't go towards the monk. I think that would be my final advice. No, I'd no. just skip that one. If you have a look at the list of books that Isabella does list off to Catherine, they are all very heavy going. If you're looking for something that's a little bit more accessible, look at more modern Gothic novels by Daphne du Maurier. That's really, really interesting in terms of examining the female position in society from a bit more of a modern perspective. Rebecca and Jamaica Inn would probably be my two recommendations there. But if you want to go right back to the very, very beginning of Gothic literature, the very first Gothic novel was The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. It's very short, it's very bizarre, but I would give it a go if you're interested, just to sort of see the roots of how these tropes started coming into play and then how women adapted it to their own experience. If you want to provide me any any links or any titles, I can also post them in that episode uh, details yeah, afterwards. Definitely. Cool. I'll have a look and send those through. Great. Thank you. Thank you for all the research you've shared with us. Um, I gave you a proper introduction, but for those who don't know, um, Tash is taking a deep dive into Gothic literature and thinking about a dissertation on it as well. So you're you're an extreme expert, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> so yeah, that expertise, it, I, it's really valuable. It takes a long time to develop. And thank you so much for sharing it with us in this really accessible way that's so easy to understand and connect to Austin. So we're really, really lucky to have you uh, back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's been so great catching up with you. Is that, are there any last things that you wanted to say or wanted to recommend, or we can go ahead and sign off? Yep. I think that's about it. Alrighty. Well, um, we'll be back uh, next time with Maggie. She's so sorry she couldn't make it today, and um, there's no there's no mailbag or anything to do today. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to say. I know I promised Pride and Prejudice uh, our episode six commentary, but because this is so Halloween appropriate, I'll make this my end of October uh, release. But the the other episode is has been recorded and is coming soon, so I'm sorry to everybody who's waiting for it. And uh, Tash, do you want to um, do our sign-off? We always say we have delighted you long enough at the end. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) We have delighted you long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Excellently done. Bye, everyone. Bye.